Oh boy, I wish we had time to read all these text messages coming oh in on Hal's conversation in the last half hour. We will get uh, around to that. Kristen, Christian, I did it again. Tristan Field Jones, Greg Mackling with you through to 4 o'clock this afternoon. And uh, this discussion is one I don't think is going away anytime soon about well, lowering the, the legal limits on uh, what's acceptable behind the wheel. And you know what's interesting, Greg, just as a little bit of uh, kind of a side note to this, I remember when I hosted uh, radio on our college radio station at Red River, at Red, uh, Red River um, you know, obviously not a massive audience, not the audience that CGOB has, but if we ever discussed, um, you know, anything that involved drinking and driving or mm-hmm. anything that involved, you know, like police patrolling socials or that sort of thing, even on a college radio station, the lines would absolutely light up. And what was the predominant view on that? It was mixed. It Frankly, was mixed. There, there is not, I don't think there's a general consensus amongst uh, Winnipeggers and Manitobans regarding the legal limit, regarding how do we prevent drunk driving. Uh, and I, I mean, we, de- we didn't have anybody saying, yeah, drunk driving's okay. Nobody called in to say that, obviously. But uh, in terms of how we tackle it, or what's what are, what's sensible legislation? A lot of opinions out there. So, like, this is a hot button issue for sure. Well, because this is not like murder, where if you look yourself in the mirror and you go, "How likely are you to commit murder, Greg Mackling?" Eh, not very likely. Let's get really hard and tough on murderers. How likely are you to have a beverage and get behind the wheel? Way more likely than I am to murder someone. So maybe yep. we better just have calmer, cooler thoughts about this because we can all put ourselves in a situation where we have one, we have two, we have three, and now we're having the debate with ourselves about drinking. And of course, I think part of it is a generational thing. The older you get, the more accustomed you've been to having a beverage or two with your dinner, then driving. Can I just read four text messages and then we'll get to our guest who's lined up here? And these are completely in order, reverse order of how they came in in the last five minutes or so. Okay. I'm a drinker. I'd like to see the legal limit drop to zero. As it is now, you have two chances to take risks. One, maybe won't be impaired after a couple or three. Two, maybe I won't get pulled over. My way says drink and get stopped. You are impaired. Instead of lower limits, why not make the punishments tougher? Lower the limit to 0.05, increase the fine big time, jail time after 0.10, permanent loss of vehicle. People are just not getting it. And the last one, instead of cracking down on people having a single beer or a glass of wine with their dinner, how about doing something about those taking certain prescription medications and getting behind the wheel. There's a little bit of a deflection there. And uh, there's one further down that I saw that says, uh, it seems to me that Winnipeggers and Manitobans like to drink and drive. Controversial. But. And do we not do it because of not getting caught? Like what dissuades you from making the proper decision? The fact that you might get caught or the fact that it's the wrong thing to do? I think it's a mix. I think it's a mix of both when it comes to a lot of these things. Um, you know what, Greg? Maybe we should save this conversation for 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 later in the show because I think there's a lot more to discuss and unpack. Because I know we have a guest waiting on yeah, the line. Yeah, we certainly do. But uh, uh, just wanted to set the table for that, oh, and, and that's I, the question I want to leave you with. Yeah. Send us a text message seven eight zero sixty eight sixty. I'm kind of limiting myself here because I know I'll go on and on. So. No problem. <laughs> the, the, the question for you in this hour is: Do you not drink and drive? Because it's the proper thing 
thing to do. It's the socially, uh, the, the responsible thing not to do is to drink and drive or because you're fearful of getting caught. And on the way in, Keith McCullough said, I bet you more people are cognizant of how much they've had to drink before they get behind the wheel in December than they are in any other month. What happens in December? Check stops. We'll leave it there for now, and we will revisit this conversation. Speaking of regrets, have you ever quit a job and then regretted it later? No. But having said that, though, my career hasn't been particularly long, so I'm sure there's plenty of time for me to do something like that. Well, I think uh, there are a lot of people that do. Our guest is uh, standing by. Diane Hunam-Jones, she is direct, uh, district president of Account Temps here in Canada, and they sent out uh, a new study today, and it says, there are no regrets in life, they say, just lessons learned. But does that adage ring true when it comes to your career? In a recent survey from staffing firm Account Temps, 15% of Canadian workers polled said they have Regrets about leaving their former job. Biggest regrets include departing for the wrong reason. That's 28% of people who who left with regrets. Leaving friends and colleagues, 24%. And not exploring other opportunities within the company account for 13% of the people with regrets. And Diane, that 15% number is what the report recorded uh, personally, I think that number must be much higher than 15% of people with regrets about leaving a workplace. It could be higher, but based on the, the survey of the 400 employees we went out to, 15%, so one in, nearly one in five said they regret leaving the former employer. Um, it's quite a significant number because when you make a move from a job, you should be pretty sure about the move you're making. And to sort of be looking over your shoulder and regretting what you've left behind is not a healthy way to start a new career or a new job. Why do people leave? Why do people leave their current positions? Why do they start looking for another job in the first place? Right. You know, often, often people will drill it down to money. But once they start digging a little bit deeper under the uh, covers, it's not only money. It's about the career advancement. It's about the corporate culture. It's about um, feeling appreciated. It's a a sense of accomplishment in their job. There's so many more factors um, that almost seem like soft and squishy factors, so to speak. Um, But when 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 asked, people will say, well, I actually got more money because you've got to be able to justify it in some way. But there's so many of the squishy factors and then, you know, one day the tipping point comes and it's the boss looks at you badly or you don't get appreciated for the big project you worked on and you make that snap decision, I'm out of here, versus sitting down, thinking it through, you've had a nice long career with the company, could you not talk this uh, situation through and find another resolution? Now, one of the uh, factors I found interesting here when it comes to regrets is leaving coworkers or friends uh, was, you know, a fairly significant factor when it came to regretting a workplace. And I I remember having this conversation with a colleague of mine not too long ago, uh, and she said, well, keep in mind as well that your workplace changes all the time. And I just think, Greg, here at CJOB, Mm -hmm. the number of people who've come and gone, the new faces, the people who've gone for other opportunities, it changes all the time. So, Diana, I have to ask, when it comes to factors like that, that's a very much kind of in-the-moment factor. those, Those colleagues, those friends of yours may not be there in the next year or so even. So how do we look at what at the right factors to consider before leaving a job and making sure we don't have regrets if we leave that job? 
Right. I, great question there because it is a in the moment and, you know, friends and uh, relationships come and go. So even in the workplace, they come and go. I think the immediate regret people have is that feeling of comfort they have from the friends and the great colleagues that they worked with. So when starting a new job, they look around, they don't know anybody, there's no relationship, there's nothing. So that's why that tends to be the top regret. When we look at what makes a happy employee, Positive workplace relationships sit in the top six factors. So I think that's an immediate response. But when you sort of start to dig down a little deeper, you saw that I leave for the wrong reasons. Then you you start figuring out what what you know what what a person really left for. But I think it's a snap, as you say. People come and go. It's a, it's an immediate regret. And I think to make sure that you um, don't have those regrets, because we're talking about regrets here in, in changing your career, is if you are unhappy at all in your in your organisation. Try addressing the dissatisfaction. And it's fascinating to me, quite honestly, the number of people that come to us looking for a new career and we say, why do you want to leave? And it's a very small dissatisfaction in the workplace. And we say to them, have you spoken to your boss or your human resources department about that? And the answer is nine times out of ten, no. So we coach them to go back and try to resolve the issue. Don't give up a great workplace and a great career because there's something worrying you that you're not addressing. So we would say address the dissatisfaction first and foremost. I know when I was a manager and I had employees that were complaining about one another, I would ask them, what did person X say when you addressed person Y about your concern? Oh, well, I haven't spoken to them yet. Well, you know what? Yeah. After you have that conversation, you and I can have a conversation because uh, for whatever reason, we we tend to default to our managers and to our bosses right. on so many things in the workplace when it, it you know you're in an, an area and, a, and an organization of equals for the most part. Diana, I have to ask you this. How often do you see... You hand in that letter of resignation, you've hemmed and hawed and you've pined and you've spent time looking for another job, and then suddenly your employer realizes that you're extremely valuable to them, and all of a sudden this Pandora's box of opportunity is open, more money, uh, maybe more holidays. How often do you see that in your world? Very, very often. And I can tell you right now in the kind of employment market we're seeing, and particularly in Winnipeg, you have such um, low unemployment and high job creation. That ha- that counter-offer situation you're talking about, I would tell you probably happens 50% of the time. So you go in, you're well thought out, you've gone to hand in your resignation, and now the company tells you how valuable you are. Now the company will pay you what they think you're worth. Mm-hmm. Um, we really, we would advise anybody um, against accepting that counteroffer, particularly if you've addressed some of those issues ahead of time, you know, your, your career path or um, your ability to study more, any of those small things that you've addressed ahead of time, the company couldn't give it to you, and now you're resigning, they're going to give it to you. <laughs> um, our, our statistics show that if you accept that counteroffer, you're probably a year in and you'll be gone from the company anyway. Either they'll let you go because now they're a little wary of you, they're suspicious. Or you've, those real reasons you, you decided to resign haven't gone away. They've given you more money and they've done all these things, but it sort of goes back to what the real issues were in the beginning. Now, I, I have to ask uh, if we have any, I guess, managers out there or people from uh, who might have a position of importance in a company listening. 
how can they do a better job of making sure that the employees are valuable? Because I think if I put myself in that employee's shoes for a second and say, you know what, I'm done with this job, here's my resignation, and suddenly they say, oh, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, we actually find you really valuable, we, we enjoy this, blah, blah, blah. And I just think to myself, well, you waited until the last minute to tell me that. That's not exactly great timing. So how can employers avoid a situation like that that could get potentially messy? So we use a term called re-recruit. And particularly in such a tough job market where your, your valuable employees are being recruited by other companies all the time, you need to be re-recruiting internally in your own organization all the time. So specifically, talking, talking to your top performers, making sure that they feel challenged and satisfied and appreciated in their job, understanding what's on their plate from a career standpoint. Can you help them progress? So all the things you would do if you were going to bring somebody new into your company, do it with your current employees. Re-recruit would be number one. And then two, create that culture where people don't want to leave you. The, the reality is people will ultimately leave organizations. But our goal as managers is to keep them productive and happy within our companies as long as possible. So making sure you're creating that culture where people want to stay and work with you. Diane Hunnam-Jones joins us now. She's District President of Account Temps here in Canada. And Diane, uh, last one for you here because we've got to move on, unfortunately. Enjoying this uh, immensely. Thank you for your insight. Evaluations. If you are lucky enough, because believe it or not, there are organizations that don't do annual or semi-annual evaluations, how valuable a time is that for you to set expectations and to get commitments from your employer on what the next year is going to look like and that opportunity to have your value uh, to your organization evaluated in a genuine sense? We would say that's your number one strategy to make sure you don't get into a situation where they're throwing money at you last minute, that you are owning and managing your career. So if your company doesn't do evaluations, ask for one and sit down with your manager so you can map out the next year together. Extremely valuable. Outstanding insight, Diane. Thank you for this. Will you join us again sometime? Very, very much so. Loved it. I enjoyed the uh, previous discussion. I want to tune in just to hear a little more. (laughs) Thank you so much. You can go to cjob.com. You can listen online from anywhere in North America. We appreciate your time again, Diane. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Diane Hunnan-Jones joining us uh, from Account Temps of Canada. She's a district president and giving us some, I think, outstanding advice about pondering a move what you should do ahead of time. If you're on the way out the door and it's like the car dealership where all of a sudden they've got a better deal mm. for you because you're walking out the door. And how do you take control of your career development and figure out when is it appropriate for me to ask for a raise? When is it appropriate for me to ask for more holidays? When is it appropriate to ask for you to pay for that course that I've been dying to take that you promised me three years ago when you hired me would be something that would be available to us? <laughs> you are silent. You're never silent. Why don't we break on that <laughs> non-note? I'm just thinking to myself, hmm, that's awfully specific. What is Greg talking about? We'll take a break. Mm. Uh, we'll update you on uh, the weather forecast and uh, more conversation as we make our way through the afternoon. This is the 29th anniversary of the trade of Wayne Gretzky from Edmonton to Los Angeles. We'll talk about that after global news and weather at 1.30. So never quit a job, eh? Ever been fired? 
No, I have not. No. How many jobs have you had in your life? So here's the interesting thing, Greg. I've is this uh, your first job? Technically, this is my first job, if you will. Okay. I figured we were getting somewhere. Working in a structured environment. Having said that, before this, I did several freelance jobs. So right out of college, I did a lot of freelancing. But what about before that? Like in high school, you never had a job. You never had a paperwork. No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't do that. Sort of, I think part of it was not in high school anyway, and in university, I did a bit of freelance work uh, in university and college. Yeah, that's not a job. But uh, that's like running yeah. your own business. That's not a job. Yeah. Well, so you've only had a boss once. Pretty much. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Hey, uh, this is uh, an interesting, uh, if not uh, revealing, uh, text message that we got about the drinking and driving conversation that's been going on all morning here on 680 CJOB. Hey, M&M, TFJ in brackets. Uh, with regards to lowering the alcohol level from 0.05 to point, or pardon me, from 0.08 to 0.05, it is really just a publicity stunt. As, as others have mentioned, the ones causing real damage are those that are two, three, or four times the legal limit. If you really want to reduce drinking and driving related accidents and fatalities, you need to make it easy for people to get home after the bar or an outing using reliable and safe public transportation that a normal individual would not consider using their vehicle. I guarantee if instead of cutting funds to public transportation and investing in a diversity garden that serves no purpose and making public transportation safe, reliable, and running all hours, your alcohol-related incidents with vehicles would be significantly reduced. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, and I think that that is something that they really need to tackle. It is those people who regularly drive not you know, 0.8, but drive well over the limit. Because those are the ones that are going to be causing you the issues. Those are the chronic drunk drivers, and more needs to be done to take these people off the road. Um, I'm not an expert when it comes to drinking and driving, when it comes to the blood alcohol level. So when, when in terms of if, if the experts are saying maybe this is a good idea, I would be generally in favor of it. But having said that, though, I really think that before we look at you know uh, uh, tackling this issue, we really need to see... Which which drivers are causing the most problems, the most damage, the most fatalities on our roads? And let's go after those people first, because I suspect that the ones who are the drunk drivers are the biggest issue out there. 204-780-6868. If you want to talk about this, and we get a good number of phone calls over news, we will talk about this. Otherwise, we will uh, move on and discuss 29 years ago today, where were you? The trade that not only changed hockey, but changed professional sports and maybe even the fate of the Winnipeg Jets 1.0. We'll discuss Wayne Gretzky's trade to the Los Angeles King with, with a Kelly Moore when we come back following Global News and Weather with Tristan Field-Jones. You've answered the call, so to speak. We'll answer your call as well on drinking and driving legislation that may or may not change. It's been floated by the, the federal minister that it may be time to change the federal law and lower the blood alcohol limit to 0.05. Of course, you can already get 
your license suspended for, I believe it's 48 hours if you have .05, or is it 24? I'd have I to think, check that. I think it's 24 hours, but I'm, I'm not too sure about that. So, And, of course, if you're a graduated licensing program, if you're a new driver, there's already zero tolerance for a period of time. If you're a new driver, uh, we want your input on this. This is a contentious issue. It's not cut and dry. There are really multiple sides to this discussion, including one where someone texted in their belief that more investment in public transportation would be a good start Mm -hmm. to limiting the problems that drinking uh, drivers cause. But we have callers on the line. We'll start with Kevin. Kevin, what's your take on this? You want something? Always a pleasure, gentlemen. And hear your voice, Mr. Mackling. Thanks, Kev. Um, once, Once and for all, you know, from being on with Charles Adler, being on your station for the past, I don't know how many months off and on with the subject. Let's just nip it in the ass, zero eight to zero five. It's obviously going to go to zero. So why don't we just put it at zero blood alcohol content while operating any motorized vehicle? I'm listening to all these people that are coming on to justify, well, I'm going to have one or two drinks for dinner. I'm going to have this or that. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you have your wife drive home, your spouse, your um, friend, common-law, fiance, whoever it is that you're out with, you want to have a couple of drinks, have a couple of drinks, the other person doesn't, you have a designated driver, plain and simple. Why do you want to have that in your system? Myself, I have medicated marijuana. I got to sit and wait for at least two hours to three before operating any motorized vehicle and should be all under the same guidelines. If you are under the influence, zero tolerance, zero anything in your system, alcohol forget it just don't do it why are people justifying it use your heads you got public transportation you've got taxes you got people you can call for rides you don't have to sit at home and have a beer sit on your couch instead of sitting in your car brother don't justify it don't look at it that way zero percent save some bloody lives get it going somebody do something you know, like, it's just beyond my, my, my imagination here that these people are trying to justify to have one or two drinks. Screw it. Wait till you get home. Be smart. You have that brain in your head. Use it. I've seen so many things in 20 years of driving professionally on the roads that it is just bewildering why people would do this and our government would allow this to happen. Government, hey, listen. With the rest of half of Canada that I talked to on the Adler Show months ago, 0% blood alcohol content. Let's save some lives. Thank you, Kevin. Your passion is always appreciated and welcome here. This is a cultural thing. For years, for years, we drove without any consciousness about drinking and driving. It started to change in the late 70s, in the early 80s, into the 90s, and now... There's zero excuse to not Mm -hmm. understand the potential dangers of drinking and driving. There's zero excuse for that. And, and, you know, some people complain about, uh, let's use MPI as an example, having an advertising budget for drinking and driving. And and I kind of see the perspective of, well, why the heck do we have to tell people not to go drinking and driving? Because we're still doing it. Exactly. That's why we need to. As someone who witnessed a horrific crash a year and a bit ago... Uh, just outside the building where I live, an absolutely horrific crash. And when you see that firsthand and the dozens of people who were there who were first on scene and at 1 a.m., yeah, let me tell you, we still need that because some people are not getting it. Lindsay, the floor is yours. Go ahead, please. 
I don't understand why people need to drink in the first place. Uh, the last caller sounded very, very angry, <laughs> but a lot of it has to do with, in my opinion, just being aware of, um, you know, who you are as a person and what makes you um, want to socialize in a way that where you become more and more drunk and you and you become less and less aware of, of you know your, your surroundings i guess so it's a lot of it's you know media and self uh it's a lot of it's advertising you know commercials and people wanting you know to fit in and um but i find that if you just are accepted as um for who you are as a person, drinking shouldn't really be an issue. And if people can't accept you for who you are without drinking, then that's their issue, you know? This is such a social issue and and cultural, right? Because a a big part of our gatherings, whether it be for any type of celebration, birthday, anniversary, you name it, uh, there's food and there's people and there's alcohol involved for for most of Mm -hmm. us. Most of, yeah, you're right, and what you know, that's part of the norm, I guess. So. Yeah, and then, and so that's what we battle, right? Because th- this has become a cult- cultural norm to to have that discussion with yourself or even with others around you. Am I okay to drive? And we maybe need to realize that the time for that conversation is over. And that maybe 0.0 needs to be the new norm. I, I don't know. I don't have the answer to this, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm really happy to get your point of view. Thank you, Lindsay. Yep. Let's go to Bob. Bob has a unique perspective. Bob, what did you do for a living once upon a time? I'm a retired police officer, and I was a breathalyzer technician, so... <laughs> Oh, I, uh, you know I a thing or two about this. Yeah. Well, you know, it's the number is really immaterial and that you've got to have sufficient resources to catch the people at the same token. And if you do catch somebody that uh, you suspect has been drinking, by the time you take them back in for a breath test and everything else, you're looking at least an hour and a half, two hours off the road. So how many are you going to get away in the meantime? Um, you know, it's ironic that the federal government wants to reduce the, the blood alcohol percentage when yet they're looking at legalizing marijuana and and so-called decriminalizing in the meantime, that's a level of impairment and there's no test for it. So you're going to have even more people impaired on the road. I, I just don't see, you know, lowering the limit. I, I, I'm, I'm with some people. I, I would prefer nobody ever drink, but it's the same token uh, and drive. But at the same token, uh, you know, what's what's reasonable Um uh, I just see it as sort of a double standard. It's uh, there's not enough resources out there now. Bob, as as a former police officer, I have to ask your opinion on this. A lot of people who are texting are saying, "What are we doing to catch those drivers who are way over the speed limit?" Because a number of people have mentioned to us, you know, are we doing enough to crack down on the really bad offenders, the people who get drunk time and time again and still get in a vehicle? I, I would love to see it, but I have to tell you, even even people that have caught like that, I've had people with two and a half, three page drivers records with multiple convictions that have have done time, and yet they're still out there. So uh, stopping them, I don't think you're ever going to stop them. There's always going to be somebody that's going to take the risk or take the chance. I mean, I've caught people that were caught drinking and driving a vehicle, had their license suspended, caught them drinking and driving a tractor. They're suspended. They're already suspended. They do more court time, uh, you know, and to the point where it gets to even on on a bicycle or motorcycle, they think it's another form of transportation. They just don't stop. 
until until somebody dies. I, I you know, I, I you're just you're never going to get them all. We can only do so much, and there's just not enough resources out there. Bob, can I can I ask uh, just uh, so that you can share from your perspective? This is this is uh, across all age groups, all cultures, both genders. I know that uh, older men and, and younger men may be uh, more prominent and, and get caught and get charged more often with drinking and driving. But this is this is a, across uh, pretty much the spectrum of our society, is it not? Oh, I've had, you know, 15-year-olds don't have a license being caught drunk. I've had 85-year-old people. Uh, it is. It's, it's male. It's female. It's, uh, it's any walk of life. Uh, you know, sometimes you you get, you know, when I, I worked in small towns, you get somebody that normally doesn't drink, but their wife just passed away from cancer and they're they're feeling, you know, bad for themselves and they, they go on a binge and go out and drive and they get caught and it's it's out of character. But, uh, you know, you don't know what possesses somebody to 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 actually take the risk. It's uh they think it's safe. They think a couple of miles and, uh, you know, I'm going to make it home. Uh, I have a, a place in the country and uh, we know of a relative that's lost his license years ago and uh, he's literally got a beer in his hand from 9 in the morning till till 10 at night and hasn't stopped him from driving. Bob, thanks for your unique uh, perspective on this. We appreciate it very much. We'll uh, take a break and uh, update the weather forecast. We have some uh, a warning and a watch in effect mm-hmm. for southeastern Manitoba. We'll tell you about that. More text messages and more of your calls at 204-780-6868. Let's jump right back to the phone lines. The floor is yours. April's been waiting patiently. Good afternoon, April. What's your take on this? Okay. This coming from somebody who lost her uncle in a drunk driving accident. Um drinking and driving shouldn't be done at all. You should never have any alcohol and drive. Now, my, two years ago, there was a young lady that was killed on Bishop Grandin when, or, and by a drunk driver. When my daughter heard this on the radio, she said, what is that girl, dumb? You shouldn't drink and drive. She was sick. So I think the message has gotten out there that we shouldn't drink and drive. But it's just not, for some people... They haven't had an experience that has scared them enough to not do it. With all the driver's ed videos and, you know, how connected the world is with social media, I, I, you know, you make a great point. And I just wonder if if that's enough. You mentioned uh, your little ones, and my kids are, are pretty astute as well when it comes to uh, things they hear on the news and conversations that we have about making good decisions down the road. Uh, I think if you asked most kids, they would, a majority of them, a vast majority, I would be willing to bet, would say that drinking anything and driving is, as was it your, uh, was your son that said it, they, that would be dumb? Yeah, my daughter, yeah. And it's because if my husband's having a beer... I'm not, I'm drinking iced tea. And if somebody offers me a drink, I say, no, I'm driving later. So I've shown my daughter and well, and my son that if you're driving, you're not drinking. That's different than when we were kids though, right, April? No, actually, <laughs> believe it or not, my parents were the exact same way. If my dad was drinking, my mom wasn't. If my mom was having a few, my dad wasn't. Oh, that, that was the exception to the rule, though, unfortunately. I'm, I'm applauding. Yeah. That, now, see, that's the uh, the kind of change. I don't know how long it would take to have everyone view it that way, but uh, I, I, that applause is for you as a parent and to your parents as parents, April. Thanks for sharing this. Yeah. Appreciate Thank it you. very much. 
And uh, Alan, Alan's going to get the last live take on this. Alan, you have the floor. I don't know. I was just, my opinion is uh, I grew up in a house without any alcohol in it ever. And uh, talking to older people in, uh, that I'm related to and just other friends, and uh, they just feel that if you respect it like you were to have a pop or something like that in a, in a meal, or you never really have more than one or two cans of Coke or whatever it is in a, in a, in a meal. Uh, if you drink more than that in a meal, I don't see a reason to it. And if you just respect it like alcohol should be respected, uh, drink it one one or two or something like that. But just know you're driving, just don't drive after that. It's, uh, I, don't, I don't see a point to drinking and driving. I've never been drunk myself. I just drink it because it's a social it's a social thing. If you do with a couple guys, go and have a drink and then just know your limit and uh, don't drive home later on, as simple as that. Yeah, it's an interesting point. How many people sit and crack three or four cans of Coke or have four glasses of milk with their dinner? That that mm. would be unusual, right? You'd get a little bit of an odd look from your exactly, family or right? friends if you did that, right? Exactly. So why why have like six or seven or eight, whatever it is, cans of beer, right? When you can have, when you usually have one, one Coke. One Coke does it for everybody usually, or one pop, right? Alan, a very unique perspective. Yeah. I appreciate for sh- uh, appreciate you for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. You bet. Cheers. Uh, you and I were discussing this whole idea about perception and about knowing our own bodies. And, and I would argue that maybe we've not been very good at figuring all that out. And I don't think we're honest with ourselves about how much we've actually had to drink. If you have the one drink rule, which is my rule, yeah. I'll have one and I'll have it at the beginning of my visit. Uh, that's my rule. And um, and I'm not, I am not righteous uh, on this one because I have made my fair share of mistakes in judgment over the years. I will, I am not an angel. I, I, Hey, uh, this is, since I had kids, a a revelation for me. So uh, I don't want to pretend to be uh, uh, someone that uh, drank and drove all the time, but that doesn't mean I've never done it in my lifetime and made bad decisions. But we're terrible at being honest with ourselves about even how much we've had to drink. Because once you get over two and you start quizzing how many you've had, if if you're in the three, four area, I challenge you that you've been keeping uh, that good a track. Uh, it, it's kind of like, uh, how many girlfriends have you had, you know, uh, depending on the conversation, you're either cutting it half or, or you're doubling it, depending on who you're trying to impress. Well, and, and, and let me use a real life example that happened, happened to me recently. Went to a fretting of a, uh, went to a wedding, excuse me, just combined two words. A fretting. A fretting. Went to a wedding of a very good friend of mine, Mike Grosvenor, who used to, used to be a producer here at CJOB. And, uh, I knew at the beginning of the evening, as is typical, they'd be serving wine. So I figured beginning of the evening, it's about six o'clock or so i'm gonna have one glass of wine knowing full well i won't be out of there until midnight or one o'clock and there'll be plenty of food i figured i'll have one glass of wine and i know that i'll be fine after that mm-hmm. you know and i know that it'll that i'll be okay to drive home and i was driving a few friends home as well at and we left it was after 1 a.m i figured i know i'm okay but i was thinking that before i had the glass of wine and after the glass of wine well far too often we think about how we're getting home four drinks in no, and that was not... And, I know and, that's not your what you experienced, but that's what a lot of people do. They don't make the consideration. It's like, hey, I thought you were driving. No, I thought you were driving. I want to read this text here from uh, Peter. He says, hey, guys, maybe if we had a program like Operation Red Nose all year round, that would help, though it will never get the real boneheads off the road. 
Interesting. I'm a tow truck driver. My life is always in danger because nowadays a uh, driver doesn't even know what is sl- to how to slow down, pull over, uh, and drinking and driving. So, uh, it, yeah, never mind getting the basic rules of the road correct when we're sober. You throw in that wild card of having a couple or five drinks and getting behind the wheel and this tow truck operator uh, and I knew a tow truck operator very close to my family who was killed in the line of duty almost 10 years ago now. Amanda mm-hmm. Frizzly was her name. She was working downtown at two o'clock in the morning, a drunk driver going the wrong way down a one way took her life and she was a volunteer helping to clear the streets for the cancer run the next day. So, I mean, there are stories out there. We're terrible at following the rules as it is. Never mind when we've had too much uh, alcohol. But we need to have that conversation beforehand. And if I use my wedding example, uh, you know, where I I had a glass of wine, if this had been just meeting out with friends for an hour or two, I wouldn't have had a glass of wine. Instead, I would have had a beer. It would have been beer because I know that, you know what, I've got a a lesser chance of being affected by that. And we need to look at this before you go to the event. You need to consider the say, is there any alcohol or will I be consuming any alcohol? And if the answer to that is no right off the hop, well, then then it needs to stay no throughout the evening. And it's just it's a matter of planning. It's a matter of thinking. It's a matter of being cognizant of the fact that you may have a few too many and that decision And that decision impacts more than one person, regardless if you drive or not. That impacts more than one person if you choose to have a few too many. Yeah, and and it's it's changing a culture because for so many people it's been a part. Last one, my kids are 19 and 17 and part of the graduated licensing program. I've been impressed over and over again how they and their friends go out of their way to make sure there is always a designated driver. And that if they are driving, they are absolutely not drinking. If teenagers can do this, I'm sure adults can too. This is ridiculous, old conversation we keep having to have in our society. It should be zero for anyone driving. I think that's a great way to finish things off. I'm Greg Mackling. He's Tristan Field-Jones in for vacationing Brett McGarry. At the top of the hour, we have global news and weather. And then uh, we're going to shift gears. We're going to talk a little rock and roll with a Winnipegger who's living his rock and roll dream. Brent Fitz, Fitzy to his friends, will join us in studio after 2 o'clock. A little bit of kiss. Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Peter Chris, Ace Freely. Destroyer is the album. One of my very first record albums. So good. Yeah. I, I was I haven't heard a lot of stuff from KISS, so I I really don't have an oh, opinion on Oh, you don't have them. an opinion on KISS? No, not I'm I mean, surprised. I, here's the thing. A lot of people hate them because they're supposedly sellouts and whatever it is, which I guess. But honestly, you know, the criticism of a band being, oh, they're sellouts. That is, that's something that never crosses my radar because more often than not, uh, when it comes to certain bands being sellouts, you know, this is one of the biggest criticisms of Genesis as an example. When Phil Collins took over as frontman after Peter Gabriel left, you know, Genesis were suddenly sellouts because they started making music that was more pop friendly, Mm -hmm. to which I say, no, that's not selling out. That's a different direction. It's called making a living. Yeah. Because if you don't have 
music that appeals to more people than it doesn't appeal to, guess what? You're not a musician anymore. You have right. a part-time job playing instruments in a band, not in front of anyone, and nobody's ever heard of you. So, I mean, that argument, I think, is tired uh, to be true. Uh, the reason that it's so ironic that that was our music bed, because our next guest... <laughs> Look who's here. Brent Fitz joins us now, and uh, he is about to embark on a world tour with the one and only, the aforementioned Gene Simmons. Hey, Brent. How you doing, buddy? Jeez. Right in the room here to talk. <laughs> yeah, like, it's like you're even in a here. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had, uh, we had uh, Detroit Rock City as the music bed, yeah. and we're all set up. We're all ready to, to go, and uh, hey, what's it going to be like to be playing with one of your legends. I mean, I know you've done that, uh, but one of your favorite uh, performers of all time. Yeah, what, what's favorite, it going to be like? That's my favorite band. I still have my Kiss posters on the walls at my parents' place in St. James. you kidding me. I'm serious, <laughs> yeah. Are yeah, this will be cool. I mean, you know, I played with a lot of great people that I aspired to be when I was a kid, and so I guess this is just another careful what you wish for moment. But I haven't played a gig yet. You realize I'm going tomorrow to my first show. Uh, we're doing a, a casino gig in... Uh, in Minnesota, so it's just going to get tomorrow. on Lazer Modier and just drive. Oh, I'm driving down. Yeah, <laughs> that's how we do it in Winnipeg. We drive to the gig. That's fantastic, man. Hey, this has been a heck of a weekend, a homecoming for you. You've been home for almost a week now, and uh, sorry if I let the cat out of the bag for people that you haven't seen that might want to see you while you were here. But got to see you Friday night uh, performing with uh, Todd Kearns and Corey Churko and another legend in this world in this realm, uh, Spider yeah. uh, from Streetheart, and yeah. uh, an incredible treasure to your good friend who gave you the uh, nickname Charlie. Did mm -hmm. you carry that with you everywhere? Did a lot other people than Kenny Shields call you Charlie? No, right? it's actually a, just a thing between Kenny and I. So uh, anyone that you know knew me when we played together knew that that was... And it was because of um, Charlie Watts from the Rolling Stones. You know, that was sort of... I thought that was the best nickname I could ever get. You, you know, think? One of my favorite drummers. So, yeah. Uh, Brent, I did a little bit of research looking into sort of all the bands and the musicians you've played with. My was blown away. I was, I looked at that. I thought, oh man, he's played with this guy and that guy and them. And I think it's worth mentioning to the audience. I don't, I really don't think people know just how many people you've performed with. I think you should, I, I'm giving you the opportunity to brag here a little bit because I was really impressed. Well, you know, even back in the Winnipeg early days of me playing clubs in the late 80s, you know, I was 18 years old out of high school and um, just that alone was the, the like the club bands I was in weren't, you know, world famous or anything. But as I got into the, uh, you know, the community in Winnipeg, I did get to play with Kenny Shields and, and it wasn't street art, but it was Kenny Shields early on. Um, before I moved to Los Angeles. So I thought that was, I thought I had made it when I was in Winnipeg just to play with Kenny. You know, that I was good enough with that. And then I moved to Los Angeles and then things really started to, to open up. But, um, you know, I think since I did move there, my whole idea was to get busy and get to work and play and make a name for myself and play with people that I was inspired to, to play music with. So in a strange way, like a lot of those opportunities kind of came from playing with Streetheart and Kenny because I learned a lot of my tools. I learned playing at Night Moves and the Dime Club and the Zoo and Mears Pub Club. I played all those places a million times. When I moved to L.A., people were like, wow, people from Canada can really play. And I was kind of <laughs> surprised by that because where I come from here locally, everybody can play, or at least I, I think and I know so. And when I moved to L.A., then all of a sudden the, the, the floodgates 
kind of started to come open. And uh, and then a gig turns into another gig. Hopefully you do a good job. So, yeah, I mean, early on I, I met and started to work with a couple guys from uh, Bruce Kulik, who was in Kiss, and John Karabi, who was in Motley Crue. Those are two bands I grew up, you know, loving as a kid. And, uh, and then it just sort of springboarded into... I got to work with, um, well, I, you know, at some point I was with Alice Cooper, and um, I'm almost forgetful of a lot of these gigs because I just do this so often that it, um, uh, well, let me just tell you what happened in the last, basically, two weeks of my life. Okay. I was in Nashville. Unfortunately, when, you know, uh, Greg, you and I had spoke, um, I was in Nashville rehearsing when Kenny had passed, but um, I was in Nashville rehearsing for a gig. A couple days later, I flew to Toronto to rehearse, and then I flew over to the UK to play with Monster Truck, an awesome Canadian band from Toronto. But I was filling in. I wasn't, it wasn't my regular gig, but my drummer buddy was uh, having a baby, so they called me in last minute. And then I came home to Winnipeg for a couple days to catch my breath. We just played two awesome Tuke shows in Winnipeg at Nashville's, and we also played Kenora Harbor Fest. And then I'm catching my breath from that, and then I'm leaving to go play these Gene Simmons gigs. So this this is just like the last two weeks of my life. So, but this has been going on since you know I, I played with Slash from Guns N' Roses the last six years of my life, and whatever else has been going on in between. But how, how do you you know you, you take the steps right the, the little steps because I've I've done it too in the last nine years I've gone from being a guy that listened to the CJOB thirteen hours a day yep. to someone who now gets to work here yep. I get to sit in the press box and yep. work alongside Bob Irving and and these individuals who were just my gods right the, the radio gods yep. right and now I get to work alongside these people. And at some point, you just have to suck it up and go, this is my reality. Where did that tipping point come for you, Brent? Well, you know, and it's it's all about, if I'm speaking on behalf of you, I think it's because you love what you do, right? So when you do what you love and get the chance to keep, you know, working at it, and it's a life, I'm a lifer. I'm a plan A type of personality. So what I mean by that is my parents were supportive they are not professional musicians. They wanted me to, to pursue music, but they couldn't tell me how to make a, a music career out of it. So I had to figure everything out on my own. But the steps involved were I didn't have a plan B. It was like, I'm going to make this music career work. So the tipping point moving to Los Angeles, that really has to be the most important because, you know, all the tools I got up here in Canada playing with all these other great musicians, it was a an opportunity pool in a really big music community that sort of changed the game. So I could have, you know, stayed here in Winnipeg and I probably would have been okay as a musician too, but I knew that I would get to play with a lot of other different people. And, and, but the thing is, you know, I'm still Winnipeg and I'm, my heart is still here. And it's Isn't like, as much nickname, as one of your other nicknames, the mayor of Winnipeg, I, I don't know. I, I probably have to fight over. <laughs> that's what, uh, that's what Kurt called you the other night. Yeah. Well, I mean, because I'm always running into Winnipeggers in, Everywhere I I am musically, I mean, I live in Las Vegas. I've been there for many years. I know a ton of great Winnipeggers there that work in either Cirque du Soleil or Celine Dion or there, you know, some or music community. Los Angeles, when I lived there, I met tons of Winnipeggers. Uh, I was in Nashville two weeks ago, and I had a good hang with Chris Bergafney, who's from Winnipeg, who was there writing songs. So it never ends. The apple doesn't fall from the tree. So you were mentioning about kind of the little steps that got you to where you are today. What would be your advice for musicians out there nowadays who might be interested in making a career out of it? 
And we, we tend to, I think when it comes to our goals, we tend to look at the big picture and not look at the tiny little steps. Hmm. I mean, for instance, I'm, I'm a drummer and I'm using the air quotes here because we have a little You're band. You're a drummer like I'm a drummer, TFJ. Yeah, probably, exactly. That's why I'm using the air quotes. But it's just you, you, like one of the things that, that myself and my friends will come up with, we'll listen to bands like, you know, we'll, a lot of like Motley Crue or Rush or Iron Maiden, like these really talented bands. And we think, we sit back and think, oh, crap. How do we even get to be a tenth of a percent of that good? So what would be your advice to, to, to musicians out there who might be maybe not even making a career out of it, but just interested in, in dipping their toe more so into music? Well, so my story is just it's so far back. You know, as a kid, I, I really knew maybe when I bought my first Kiss album at eight years old, like, I'm going to do this. I want to do this. I mean, it starts with my parents getting me a drum kit and taking piano lessons and all that. So again, back to that plan A, I'm, I'm a little bit tunnel vision when it comes to the, the, uh, tell, to tell you how and, and what it is that, that, that fuels me other than this. I only know this. So I'm very focused. I'm selfishly like I have a wonderful wife who's very tolerant of a lifestyle that takes me all around the planet and I'm always traveling and, and she supports, but, um, I think I just love what I do. I, I, I think I give that off every day when I wake up. I'm like, I want to make myself a better musician, a better person, and travel and go see the world. And it's all encompassing. It's like a lifestyle. So and I, I was just on the way here. I'm listening to you guys on the radio, and I hear people talking about drinking and driving. And uh, I can't even drink anymore. I haven't drank in so long. Never tried drugs. I don't smoke cigarettes because I'm just so focused on the, this darn crazy lifestyle that I don't even have a chance to party and, and enjoy it. I'm too busy not drinking. You know what you I mean? Got, you guys played for two hours straight on, yeah. fi- on Friday night. And the most humorous part for me, I'm playing a little bit of uh, dance from uh, you guys here. Yeah. Was watching you put your glasses on to change the uh, backtrack on the computer <laughs> up behind the drum kit, right? And I was marveling at how you don't miss a thing, man. Every subtle nuance in every song, because every song mm. that you played on Friday night, I have tried to play myself a hundred times, and you do not miss anything. You are perfection exemplified, my friend. Well, there's a book, Malcolm Gladwell, it's called The 10,000 Hours Rule. And, you know, I have put my 10,000 hours and then some in. So if you come to see that show Friday and it's not stellar, I haven't done my job. So <laughs> the, the whole thing about putting the, the reading glasses on, hey, I'm over 40. What's <laughs> nothing I can do? I left the house without mine that night, uh, fearful of looking too old. I, I, we would have been kindred spirits. I, I should have brought them with me. Why don't we but take a pause? Oh, go ahead, Brad. I was just going to say thank you for staying late because we did play so late. And I talked to Greg at almost two in the morning and I was just very appreciative that everyone was, you know, there so late watching the band. So thank you for that. Oh, are you kidding me? It was an absolute pleasure. If you get the opportunity, we'll let you know when uh, Tuke is playing in Winnipeg again, or even a, a half a day's drive away because it's worth the trip. We'll take a break, update the weather forecast, and then more with Fitzy when we come back. This is some audio I stole from uh, YouTube. It's from a street heart show, I think, in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, from about 10 years ago. It's oh. the beginning and the opening of action. And I thought those I recognized notes, those chords. Those notes on the keyboard, they were the, the underlay for most of my fictitious play-by-play exploits that I would practice when I was younger. And I thought it was the best sports 
music bed there was. Brent Fitz, along with Tristan Field-Jones, Greg Mackling. Uh, Brett McGarry is probably kicking himself for not being here today. Uh, good to have you in the studio, Brent, and, and thanks for uh, taking time uh, the morning that we learned the, the tragic news of Kenny Shields passing. Kenny was such a big influence on you, and you so eloquently shared with us your memories and stories, even though you'd probably had a, a busy night the night before when I talked to you on Friday, you said, I was half asleep when I was talking to you guys. That that is one of our most listened to interviews we've ever had here at 680 CGOB online. It's been shared, listened to over 2,000 times around the world. The impact of Kenny Shields on Winnipeg, on Winnipeg music. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I was debating whether to go back and listen to that interview because it's available online. And I was like, I can't listen to it because I think I was pouring my heart out, but I don't even want to. Go, go back and listen to my own words because I know I, what I said was what I meant and I had just been reading my text messages that morning and woke up and you guys had contacted me right away so I thought rather than not just get my thoughts going I thought this I'm just going to let it all out so uh yeah, it was pretty emotional. Well, we appreciate you doing mm. that. But, you know, uh, we, we had that. There was a debate going online on my Facebook page right now mm-hmm. about uh, not my page, somebody else's in my feed, about whether Streetheart is a Winnipeg band or a <laughs> Saskatchewan band. <laughs> I knew what you were going to say with that reaction. I knew what that was. tells me that my uh, venom for Saskatchewan is uh, becoming a problem. But, I mean, some of the mm. greatest people I know and love are from Saskatchewan. It doesn't really matter, does it, Brent? Well, I will say this. Um, I will fight you on the... Here's what we have to just put into perspective. is It's prairie uh, get, getting the Saskatchewan and Manitoba working together. That's what Took is, too, you know. We have two I prairie know. guys from Lanigan and Moose Jaw in my band. And I and, oh, I, well, Spider's from this, uh, Saskatchewan. And I go, you know, it actually kind of works. So as much as that green rider pride thing is pretty terrible, um, <laughs> we have to agree that um, Street Heart is an amalgamation of the two provinces. So that's what makes it even better, Right. Sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> I grudgingly agree I, I with you. I think there'll be some some words off air. Let's just put it that no, way. No, there won't That's be any words. That's why I think, words. like having played with Slash in the last six years, you know, Slash even said to Todd and I once, he goes, "Man, if I would have known, I would have had two guys from the Prairies up in Canada in my band." You know, in 2010. Uh, so you know what I'm saying? Like that, having a couple guys from the states, a couple guys from Canada in his band, that works too. So I mean, we we rock and roll with the best of them. Uh, maybe just re-emphasize that reputation and that. Uh, ability to uh, transcend the border and you know you do Winnipeg so proud but there are a lot of people out there that are doing exactly the same thing Winnipeg Manitoba oh, yeah. is really known for pumping out the talent Chris Jericho and I talk often sometimes several times a day just in email St. James boys yeah and, it, and we're the same guys we were when we were kids that hung out at the 7-eleven you know in St. James there and he's Westwood a world- of course. Portage and Rouge Road. Yeah, right beside the McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, baby. A lot of trouble down there. Mm-hmm. So, but we still are the same people and we still talk all the time and kind of like laughing at, you know, Chris's, I mean, the guy's on, on uh, TV everywhere and his, you know, and he's even able to make a, a wrestling career and a music career out of it. He's like, he's a three dimensional superstar from Winnipeg. And, um, yeah, so, but we're, we always love the fact that we can still say, but we're from Winnipeg and that's, 
that never changes. We, we don't realize how much talent we have in the city. I think I think there are, and, and I kind of learned this, especially when I was in college, listening to even just the indie groups around here, yep. and really opened my eyes to, wow, we have so many talented local bands. And if you just do a brief look at, at you know classic rock history, I mean, we mentioned the likes of Streetheart, for instance, you can't forget the Guess Who or BTO or any of those bands. But Harlequin, yep. Queen City Kids. Oh, exactly, yeah. Kickaxe. Like, we we have... I, I just wish we were a little louder when it came to the amount of talent that has come from Winnipeg and, and from the prairies overall. But you know what? To our credit, we are quietly kicking butt. And I say that because I, I realize that I see so many of us around the world, but yet we don't always go and get on a pedestal and go, hey, look at me. I'm from Winnipeg, although I'm proud amongst other Winnipeggers. And uh, but. I think that is uh, a good uh, quality of us, is that we, we quietly are are in every genre of music and everywhere like around the world, yet we just kind of quietly do it without so much bravado, I think is the, the term. We're running, mean, we're running out of time here. Hey, we got to talk hockey real quick. Yes, I just want to make a Winnipeg comment. There are, what, two Winnipeggers connected with the Golden Knights right now? And uh, you know I'm the hugest Winnipeg Jets fan, but because I live in Las Vegas, I am excited there's hockey there. But let's say Corey Picard, is that how we say his last name? Yeah, and, yeah. and is Lipsick Pickard, from... Yeah, yeah. Uh, Calvin Pickard. Uh, yeah, the goaltender. Yeah, yeah, and uh, is it Bruce Lipsick from? He's for, was with Toronto. He got yep. traded to the Knights. So that's two two Winnipeggers. Yeah. Um, well, we have Gary Lawless speaking on behalf of the team now. Uh, that, oh, and what about uh, Cody Glass? The Cody Glass. Come absolutely. on, that's a lot of great story. I, I went to the awards and the um, the draft in Vegas as a proud Winnipegger, and everyone around me is like. Another Winnipegger? I'm like, yep, there you go. And Kelly McCrimmon, like, there's a huge Manitoba connection I don't there. ask for it. It just happens. I'm just saying. There it is. It's already in Vegas, and there's a whole bunch of us down there that are doing great one things. Of us. So, can, one of us. Not the Jets, but... Can, can we agree that yeah. if you believe in something enough, you work hard enough, that the world will conspire with you to make your dreams come 100%. true? 100%. Yep. Brent Fitz, that's all we've got. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Global News with Tristan Field-Jones is next. For the benefit of Wayne Gretzky, my new wife, and our expected child in the new year, that it would be beneficial for everyone involved to let, let me play with the Los Angeles Kings. I'm disappointed about having to leave Edmonton. I... Truly admire all the fans and respect everyone over the years. This is 29 years ago today, minus the Mini Wheats commercial. <laughs> but um, promise, mess, I wouldn't do this. That's Wayne Gretzky on the day he was traded to the Los Angeles Kings. But, um, as I said, there comes a time when... And he can't finish. When, uh, He can't finish his words. It's Greg Mackling along with Tristan Field-Jones in for a vacationing Brett McGarry. And, uh... 204-780-6868. Send me a text. I'd love to know your story about how you found out about that trade. 90, uh, 99 getting traded to Los Angeles. 
I know when I heard about it, I thought it was a practical joke. My cousins were playing on me. There was no way Wayne Gretzky was getting traded ever, let alone to Los Angeles. Well, it happened, and it happened, as I mentioned, 29 years ago today. Where were you when you found out? What was your reaction as a Winnipeg Jets fan? Hey, Gretzky's leaving Edmonton. Maybe we'll finally get over the hump. Mm. We'll be able to defeat the nasty Oilers. And, of course, two years later in 1990... Without Wayne Gretzky, the Edmonton Oilers managed to come back from a 3-1 series deficit in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs to uh, defeat the Winnipeg Jets in seven games. But I digress. You weren't even born. No, I wasn't even born. I, I just find it fascinating that uh, the Greg, it feels if Greg is working through a few things. Uh, still, in spite of the fact that it was 29 years ago. Dude, those are the things you never forget. You well, never forget the visceral reactions to, to certain events. Well, and, and, and I can remember exactly how I felt and where I was. And, and as someone who wasn't born at the time that uh, this trade happened, I will say this. Uh, I, I've heard about it. I've heard about it from my mom, who's a hockey fan. I've heard about it from, from friends and family members about the Gretzky trade. So believe you me, even though I wasn't around... Oh man, I've heard an earful, an absolute earful about this and and the impact it had on the sport and on people. And again, as someone who's not a massive sports fan, I can tell you this right now. You're not a sports fan at all. Let's that's be not true about it. No, no, no. I'm a I'm a fan of uh, I'm a fan of the Jets and I'm a fan of the Bombers. Okay, all right. Um, and uh, yeah, like I said, this was more than just a trade. This was almost. A, Almost a culture shock, if you will. Uh, yeah, I would agree with you. It was uh, tide turning. Our next guest is actually on the other side of the door, Tristan. If you want to go and get him, and I will remind people that it wasn't just Wayne Gretzky that got traded to the Los Angeles Kings. It was Mike Krushelniski and defenseman Marty McSorley that went to the Kings. And going to the Oilers in return were center Jimmy Carson, first-round draft choice Martin Jelena, and the Oilers also got the Kings' first round draft choices in 1989, 1991, not 92, but in 1993. I'm not sure why they didn't get the 1992 instead of the 93. And $15 million cash, which in those days was a big deal. So send me a text. Where were you? would love to hear your recollection of your feelings and where you were when you heard that Wayne Gretzky had been traded from the Edmonton Oilers to the Los Angeles Kings. That happened 29 years ago today. We have, uh, we're switching gears here, we have uh, a great story out of uh, our friends from Red River College here. Uh, uh, I'll give you the Coles Notes version here, simply put. Uh, 70% of people living with schizophrenia wish to pursue post-secondary education and gain employment, but only 30% are in the workforce due to a lack of opportunity and stigma. While River College is now offering a new scholarship, which will provide some financial relief in the form of $1,000. This is a great opportunity for those who want to pursue that post-secondary education, who want to go through college, university, whatever it may be. We have uh, Chris Somerville here, Executive Director, Manitoba Schizophrenia Society, and, correct me if I'm wrong, Schizophrenia Society of Canada as well? Yeah, the CEO. I've been doing that one for 10 years, and here in Manitoba, 22 years, the wow. longest-serving executive director of the Schizophrenia Societies across Canada, with a southern accent at that. <laughs> Came to Canada in 1985 from Birmingham, Alabama. 
best, one of the best choices ever made. Well, it's funny. I was just talking to Brent Fitz on his way out of the station here, and he wears a blue bomber jersey with the number five on it. And another gentleman from Alabama, the Birmingham rifle himself, Dieter Brock, <laughs> yeah. or Ralph Brock for a small portion of time here in Winnipeg, also from Birmingham. Uh, Chris, you're obviously a big part of our community. Why is this announcement a big deal today? Well, it's it's called uh, Yes to Me, and it's really a, a take on the words, say yes to me, too. And and so there's a lot of scholarships that are offered for a variety of great, noble causes and ch- charities and, and people with various illnesses or, or lack of opportunities. So uh, this is good news uh, across Canada, as each of the provincial schizophrenia societies are offering these scholarships made possible by Otsuka Lundbeck, even though we're not selling or marketing their products. Uh, this is uh, the Manitoba Schizophrenia Society here in Manitoba that will be awarding four scholarships. And Red River College has has been so grateful and excited uh, to, to run with this with us. And uh, it's good news to family members and people who live with schizophrenia because you know what? Uh, schizophrenia is a frightening illness. Not necessarily to the person living with it once they learn how to manage it and their family members, but to the general public. Right. So you know what? Goodwill and kindness. Y'all share a lot of that here at CJOB. You know, I listen to you uh, real often. And um, uh, and it's a good news story to say, you know what? Even if you, if you have a mental illness or schizophrenia, uh, we know recovery is possible. Hopes and dreams and passions can be pursued. Here's some help. And that's what's very helpful and tangible about this. You know, I learned, I I thought this was really interesting, the high percentage of people living with schizophrenia, and I can only imagine it's similar for other uh, uh, mental illnesses, that it's... I was really surprised at the number of people who really want to do more, who want to pursue these educations, and I think this is fantastic. If the opportunity is there for them, absolutely let them. But, you know, why is that... I, I guarantee you I wasn't the only person surprised by that number. Why is that a surprise to many people? Is, it, is this, again, does this just go back to the, the lack of opportunity and the stigma? Or Well, how we get our information uh, about mental illnesses and schizophrenia, we, we get it through Hollywood movies, we get it through the media, the high-profile stories, and you mm-hmm. can think of one that I've been associated with. Um, uh, negative portrayals. Uh, etc. And uh, for example, the most common myth about people with schizophrenia is that they're dangerous mm-hmm. and uh, completely untrue because 98% never come in conflict with the law at all. Uh, so we're constantly having to override, uh, educate the public about the truth and realities of, of schizophrenia. Uh, another myth is once schizophrenic, always schizophrenic. Uh, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s and even the 80s, when you got a diagnosis, Greg, of schizophrenia, not you, but when, you, when a person got a diagnosis of schizophrenia, uh, it was a kiss of death diagnosis. Your life was over. You know, uh, go home. We got you stabilized. Take your medications. You're not going to marry. You're not going to have any friends, etc. And that's what life was. And then because of advances in psychiatry and psychology and social sciences, uh, knowing how to help people once they're in the community. Wow, it's amazing. I know a university professor in Toronto who has schizophrenia. I know a person who works at the Manitoba Schizophrenia Society uh, who finished up at the University of Manitoba, uh, has an occupation, who's an occupational therapist. So that surprises a lot of people because, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, you know, they, 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 uh, I'll just say some words here that I generally don't say, you know, these, these crazy people, uh, uh, um, 
you know, the, um, uh, what, what are the other words? Um, uh, nut bar, a loose screw, um, and along with all the negative portrayals and what have you, we don't hear the good news stories. Now you say, well, you're not like you, CGOB, um, and the Winnipeg Free Press and others, CBC, have asked, you know, Chris, you know, can you get us a person who will speak about their lived experience of schizophrenia? And we've had some here on this show here. Uh, but it is it is like pulling teeth because they don't want to go public. Most most people with schizophrenia, I would say 95% don't want to go public because of the stigma. Is, is there a perception that there is, are stages of mental illness and that maybe schizophrenia in terms of the quote-unquote the worst one? <laughs> to have uh, might be it. at the top of the of the you, ladder you you, you got it uh, and 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 there is some truth to that I mean, in fact the world health organization says greg that schizophrenia is potentially the most devastating illness you can have in your life and but but again with with early intervention uh early identification intervention early treatment of psychosis you can actually prevent the person developing full-blown schizophrenia so the mass, so you, so you're 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 right. There is a continuum of mental illnesses, and you can have several mental illnesses, and what have you. Um, but the good news is, with what all we know today uh, about treating and helping people to recover, the sooner you identify it, guidance counselors, youth pastors, anybody that works with the youth, sooner the people are, uh, get help uh, through our medical system, then the less negative impact and less likely to go on to develop full-blown schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, et cetera. We have these conversations about uh, recalls on vehicles and uh, food safety, and it seems as though more food is being recalled, more vehicles are being recalled. And in my mind, it's not because we're building worse vehicles or our food system is less safe. It's because we're paying attention and we're less uh, we're we're less likely to cover these things up now. The system is better built to handle a recall of yeah. 300,000 uh, 300, trucks like happened last week to GM. So there is less uh, there, there's less inclination for the for the for the automobile manufacturers to hide these things. And I think there's a correlation in the mental health world that are these things less common, more common? No, we're just more comfortable talking about yeah. them now. And and, yeah. and, and and I think that's on a long list of things now that we can be thankful for, that we are comfortable communicating about things that affect us, things that we need to do to make ourselves safer, whether it's in a vehicle, out buying uh, food at the grocery store, or with our own mental health. I know that was a long way around there, Chris, and I <laughs> yeah, apologize. Yeah, well, this example of this news story, Red River College, you know, that wouldn't have been had five years ago. Right. So the rate of schizophrenia hasn't changed since my birth in 1952. I have a brother with schizophrenia, a brother with bipolar, a father with bipolar, but uh, the latter two both took their life by suicide. I'm very familiar with this. I just know that um, um, we we can do better in the mental health care system, even though the individuals working in the mental health care system are really giving their hearts and they're burning out left and right. But it's not just about cutting programs. It's about offering an array of services that prevent relapse, prevent rehospitalization. And that's what gets cost down. The less people go to the hospital, the less relapse. And if you provide the right services at the right time and in the community, yeah, you can drop the provincial budget in terms of health care. But it's not just about cutting services. It's, it's about quality and knowing what works to prevent relapse and rehospitalization. 
We'll take a break. We'll come back. Uh, we'll update you on the weather forecast and more conversation about schizophrenia and this idea of do we have less excuses now to not deal with this because we know the different epidemics in terms of mental health that are on the forefront. They are out there. And if we're not treating them, are we more guilty than we were 20 years ago when we did really didn't know and we didn't know what to do? We'll have that part of the discussion when we come back. Greg Mackling, along with uh, Tristan Field-Jones, who's in for Brett McGarry. I'm Greg. He's Tristan, along with Chris Somerville, is joining us in studio. We're talking about uh, a new opportunity for those living with mental health issues, schizophrenia in particular, a new post-secondary education scholarship in the form of $1,000 to Red River College students living with schizophrenia. And you highlighted the statistics, uh, TFJ, about how many people living with schizophrenia are not working and how many people would really like to increase and improve their educational skills and and be a part of of the working uh, society. Yeah, it mentions here 70% of people with schizophrenia would like to pursue some post-secondary education, but only 30% are in the workforce due to a lack of opportunity and stigma. And and Chris, we mentioned this off air, but uh, you know, I, I, schizophrenia and a lot of these mental issues are uh, still I would say even from a scientific medical perspective, there's still some mystery surrounding a lot of these. I mean, when it comes to Alzheimer's, for instance, plenty of research Mm -hmm. is being done, but we still really don't know what causes it. And I'm sure eventually one of these days we'll find the solution. But I just think you can look back even just a few decades for something like schizophrenia or or really any similar, you know, a mental issue or mental illness. Mm -hmm. And... Well, you'd have been you would have been treated as a freak. You would have been treated as if you were you were possessed by a demon, or you were a witch, or something along those well, lines. Well, that's why asylums were built, and we had two large ones here in Manitoba, uh, Brandon and uh, Selkirk Mental Health Center. And in fact, I, I, I think our asylums here serve the whole of Western Canada. Um, so yeah, a lot of mystery, misunderstanding, uh, by the way, we're making far more progress in the study of Alzheimer's than we are in mental illnesses such as schizophrenia and bipolar and depression. It were sort of a standstill. Nothing new has, uh, come down the pipeline in terms of science, uh, uh, um, the, the last 20 years to be quite honest. Uh, but that doesn't mean we don't know about a lot of things. We do know about a lot of things that do help and do work. Um, we didn't know that. We didn't know what to do for people basically uh, 25 and 50 years ago. Uh, so people spent time in long-term institutions. But um, we now know and we know how to create a mental health system that helps people to not only have reduced symptoms, but have a quality of life, reintegrate back into society, have good mental health. Did you know it's possible for a person with a mental illness to have good mental health? Did you know that? that uh, honestly, that doesn't that doesn't surprise me. No, it, it, it wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, well, I didn't know that, but it doesn't surprise okay, me. Well, see, see, see if, when I ask the question, what's the opposite of mental illness, most people will say mental health. No, it's it's it's... No mental illness. So it's a dual continuum. So uh, horizontal, horizontally, you, you got positive mental health and negative mental health. Some of us have negative mental health, so there's presenteeism on the job. And then there's the vertical bar, um, makes a quadrant. you got a mental illness and, and no mental illness. And uh, both are an uh, economic burden to our economy, uh, languishing mental health and mental illness. 
but we know what to do about it, Greg. Yeah, we do. But then there's no excuses anymore not to have programs in place. If you don't, if you have a workplace, you don't have a policy to deal with people that have to go on leave for mental mm-hmm. health issues. Mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. we would look down our noses at any employer mm-hmm. that doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. And our governments and our medical system that knows what needs to be in place, but maybe it refuses to put all the, the, the do, fail-safe... Do, do, organizations and treatments in place. But you know who gets it? The insurance companies. Because uh, disability, disability claims, the highest is in the area of mental health. And uh, so... If they're paying out on that, that might mm -hmm. be all the legitimization that you need. So, So, Greg, why is it that one in five people right now listening to you uh, have a significant mental health problem, challenge, or, or, or mental illness, and it's it's the lowest in the health budget? When you look at the health budgets across Canada, the spending for mental health in the healthcare system is at the very bottom. Why is that? Because we, we're not I, demanding, we're not demanding. We're not demanding it, but it's also not physical. Like when somebody's not, right. when somebody yeah. has cancer, yeah. you know they have cancer. Yeah, right. You when, can see it. when somebody, uh, yeah, right. When somebody has a broken arm, you know they have a broken right. arm. Right. I, you point out, you find find twenty people on the street. Yeah. Don't ask me to identify yeah. who has a mental illness. And it, it's still embarrassing. I mean, even even for me, I mean, I mean, not as much so as ninety nine percent of the people listening today. But I mean, you know, when something goes wrong with your brain and your thinking, it, it, it's it's nearly more embarrassing than talking about a urinary problem. Now, I mean, a lot of people you are probably right laughing right that, now, but mm-hmm. I, but I'll guarantee you, 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 you know, you don't talk about schizophrenia sitting in McDonald's. You, you might talk about Alzheimer's, though. Yeah, Chris Somerville, thank you for this. Thanks for the work that you do, and congratulations to you and to Red River College for creating this new scholarship that will help people that normally wouldn't have the opportunity to improve themselves and to get post-secondary education, allow them to do so. We appreciate this. Thank you very much. Uh, you said it before we came on the air this afternoon and when we were visiting with Hal Anderson before 1 o'clock, Tristan Field-Jones, it was going to be a fluid afternoon here on Mackling and McGarry, and it's certainly been that. We had a conversation that we'd recorded with Kelly Moore about the Wayne Gretzky trade, which took place 29 years ago today. We will probably not get around to uh, airing that. Uh, We had some other tidbits of information and stories that we were going to share with you, and we had Mm -hmm. to juggle things, and I Apologize. I want to apologize to our listeners for our kind of our clumsy segue from a brief conversation about the Wayne Gretzky trade into a conversation with our guest, Chris Somerville, who was just a little bit late for our segment. So I apologize for going from talking about hockey to schizophrenia and mental illness uh, overall. But uh, we didn't really want to take a break. We wanted to jump right into that discussion as soon as Chris got here. So I just uh, wanted to uh, make amends mm-hmm. uh, for the way that we uh, transferred our time topic of conversation there. I'm going to do it again, though. Well, this show very much is a train of thought. Like, if it weren't called Mackling and McGarry, it'd be called Train of Thought with (laughs) Brett McGarry and Greg Mackling. Yeah, with lots of offshoots and derailments along the way, without question. (laughs) Lots of derailments. Today's derailment of the day is brought to you by... Yeah, well, we'd need lots of sponsors for that uh, because we go off on tangents. Uh, We were talking uh, off the top of the show about drinking and driving and the possibility of the legal limit going from 0.08 to 0.05. We had outstanding calls and text messages about that. Mental health... 
issues very close to my heart. Chris Somerville, first time I've met him face to face, even though I've interviewed him probably half a dozen times. Uh, delightful man and a strong advocate for uh, the right things and in, in, in doing the right things for those afflicted, not only with schizophrenia, but other forms of mental illness. So I want to thank him for coming in. Brent Fitz, talk a little rock and roll. There's another topic that gets me absolutely furious, Mm. and it's when people leave their kids in their car. It's bad enough when you leave your pet in your car on a hot day. We have been inundated for the last several years, and I think it's because of social media that these stories are a lot more prominent and how interconnected the media is. But there's a story out of Florida today. Uh, happened in the last couple of days. We're, we're going to play it for you from uh, Global News. The mother of three-year-old Miles Hill showed up at Little Miracles Academy Tuesday to leave a rose in memory of her son. We just pray for that because, I mean, obviously this is this is your worst nightmare come true. Orlando Police Chief John Mina says Hill died after being left in the back of a daycare van for almost 12 hours Monday. It appears the death is heat-related. The other kids were dropped off um, and you know the daycare worker didn't realize that Miles was still in the van. Mina said after picking up several kids at their homes and taking them to the daycare's West Colonial location, the driver returned to the daycare on Plymouth and parked the van outside for the rest of the day, unaware that Miles was still in the back. The daycare worker did admit to not doing a head count. When Miles was not dropped off at his grandmother's home Monday night, she called police and then the daycare. A daycare worker checked the van and found Miles' body on the floor. That worker called 911. Police say when the autopsy is complete, the van driver will be charged. They say the driver has been cooperative and is distraught. Parents and others stopped by to contribute to a growing memorial. One mom who has a three-year-old daughter at the daycare wants accountability. Someone needs to pay for this because her child is going, you can't, there's no amount of anything that can get her child back. And because of the negligence, someone has to pay. Little Miracles was closed Tuesday, and by midday, two women unlocked the door and headed inside with DCF investigators. When they left, the older woman would not say who she was. I feel sorry for what happened. I'm sorry to the family. They got my condolences. But other than that, I can't say anything else. Orlando Police Chief John Mina says, this just gets me angry. This was the fifth, one, two, three, four, five, fifth fatality in Florida this year involving a child left in a hot vehicle. Now, if I'm not angry enough when I'm reading that, you want you want to know what pushed me over the edge, Tristan? Mm-hmm. Is what law officials are encouraging people to do in order to remember that they have children in the car. He pleaded with parents and caregivers not to remember that they actually have living beings and and little children in their care. He pleaded with parents and caregivers to put their cell phones, wallets, or purses in the back seat with their children so they are reminded to look back there when they leave their vehicle. This suggests to me that our society puts more value, and I know I'm going off on a tangent here and I'm a little bit angry, but this suggests to me that 
there are certain aspects, certain people in our society that may value their cell phones, wallets, and purses more than their children. Yep. This is what yep. you're telling people as a way to remind them of their kids? How about rem- just remember that you are in care of children? Yep. You don't need tricks to remember. You need a, a trick, a string around your finger to remember to pick up milk from the corner store on the way home. You shouldn't need some sort of prompting to remember that your children are in the back seat. I know life is busy. I know that our routines get changed about. And some of these stories, they're all actually heartbreaking. How does this happen? How does this continue to happen? It's heartbreaking. I mean, here's 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 the thing, Greg. The, part of the reason why I, I guess my reaction is, uh, uh, I I have a much more subdued reaction, if you will, is because sadly I'm not surprised. Maybe that's the cynic in me speaking. I, I I would love to be surprised and be angry at something like this, but frankly, I'm not surprised because I this happens. There are idiotic people out there who don't remember that they have a pet or a kid or someone in the backseat because they're too busy doing who knows what else could be more important. They don't remember. They forget. And that happens. And and frankly, it's 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 not right. It's disgusting. But ultimately, it is a fact of life and it is something that we have to contend with. And it's it's not an easy thing to say, but if putting your cell phone in the back seat of your car Reminds you that you have a kid. First of all, you probably shouldn't have had a kid to begin with. But second of all, if that reminds you that you had a kid, anything to make sure that your kid is safe and doesn't fry to death. Worthwhile doing. Yep. As 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 heartless and as uh, materialist as that sounds, if it prevents your kid from being seriously injured or dying, do what you have to do. Well, when you put it that way, I um, I may have to grudgingly endorse the idea, but I, it hurts my heart not only to read a story like that, but to 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 read uh, those two sentences within the story. It just uh, to imagine that 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 law official that that police chief thinks that that's a way for us to remember that we have kids in the car. I am heartbroken to to imagine that. Anyway, I'm going to uh, take a breath. We will come back. Coming up next, we'll be talking about a possible nuclear attack from North Korea. So stick around, everybody. (laughs) Yay. We have traffic and weather (laughs) together next. Tristan Field-Jones, Greg Mackling with you. Uh, Brett McGarry on holidays. I think Brett is back Wednesday, if I'm not mistaken. You and Kelly Moore in the... In the big chairs oh, on Monday be, and Tuesday? It's going to be epic. Uh, today, the 29th anniversary of the trade that sent Wayne Gretzky to the Los Angeles Kings from the Edmonton Oilers. 204-780-6868. Uh, where were you when you find out? Uh, we were talking in the last segment uh, about the story out of Florida, the little boy, uh, daycare in care of a daycare worker, uh, left behind in a van. He lost his life locked and left behind in a hot car in Orlando, Florida. 
charges are pending. Uh, Miles Hill spent all day in the van outside the Little Miracles Academy before he was discovered Monday night. Just a tragic story. Uh, getting a couple of texts here at 780-6868. I find it hard to believe people can actually say they forgot they had a child or pet in the car. If that's the case, maybe they shouldn't be behind the wheel. I think that's pretty... Good point. Not saying you should leave anything in a hot car, but if you're going to, just leave it running with the air conditioning on. And Jason says, this is society we live in. No accountability. Society's headed like that movie, Idiocracy. 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 Thank you. Uh, This has really got me worked up, man. Yeah. I'm really bothered by it. Because I, I just I don't, I don't know how it continues to happen. I try really try hard to put myself in the shoes of other parents who who have uh, you know are juggling multiple responsibilities. Uh, Jackie and I juggle multiple responsibilities, and maybe just maybe because we have two and had two, it was impossible to forget that you had kids or to go on autopilot. Maybe if you have one, I'm like, I'm really, I try hard to give people the benefit of the doubt. I've been on autopilot before. I can mm-hmm. remember I found out I was getting laid off from a job when I was 23 and I went on autopilot. I had moved maybe two months before and I was upset about the news that I'd got and I started heading towards my apartment in Charleswood while I was now living in St. James on Portage Avenue. It wasn't until I got to Tuxedo and Cordon that I realized, I don't live there anymore. <laughs> so I understand that you can get distracted. I just, uh, just every time these stories come out, uh, I, I get a little frazzled. I apologize for the well, uh, well, no, uh, it, emotional state I'm in right now. You know what it is? And we had someone else here who, who sent in a text saying, it boggles my mind how people can forget they have a little person in the backseat of their car. They can see them in the rearview mirror, then they just get out and do their errands. What are these people thinking? Well, it's not what are these people thinking, it's what aren't they thinking. Yeah. Because that's the problem. You're not thinking when it comes to this. And if it happens this often, that's five this year in Florida. Obviously, it's it's an issue. Yeah. It's an issue. Uh, can technology save us from this stupidity? Either putting your purse or your phone in the back seat with your kid uh, so that we don't forget? Or does somebody need to come up with an, an invention? I, to, to save us from our own uh, distracted selves. I will say this, Greg. Uh, Andrea just texted us, texted us saying, I'm having some major anxiety listening to this. Feel absolutely sick for that poor child and his family, the suffering. You don't need to apologize. So, Greg, I would not apologize for your emotional state. I think it makes sense. It's a horrific story. Uh, unfortunately, I think what happens in the humanity in all of us when we hear something bad like this take place we forget that not everyone is as human or as compassionate or as thoughtful as a lot of us are. And it goes against everything. I've seen, I've seen some of these people interviewed, Tristan. Yeah. And they're regular people, a lot of them. I just forgot. I was out of our routine. Normally, I drove Johnny to daycare. That day, you know, my husband did, and he went to the office and... It wasn't till lunchtime that he realized, oh, my God, I didn't take Johnny to daycare. It's uh, it's just one of those things that I just have a hard time wrapping mm-hmm. my brain around. Uh, Tristan, we'll take a break. Uh, Clay Young is standing by with 680 CGOB Sports, and uh, we've got a little bit of a weather update as well. All right. 
I like to bitch and complain about things that bother me, uh, but I also like solutions. And I want to tip my hat to the folks at Nissan who are going above and beyond uh, in the in the name of child safety. Here's something I found on uh, the USA Today website. Nissan is taking child safety to the next level. Over the past two decades, hundreds of children have died of heat strokes after being left in hot parked vehicles. Nissan has developed a rear door alert system, or RDA. If you put a child or a pet in the back seat of the car, you'll receive an alert on the dashboard reminding you to check the back seat. If I ignore that message or I'm distracted and I don't see that message and I get out of the car, if I don't go and open one of those rear doors again, my horn honks at me. And it's a really distinguishable horn honk. And the technology is standard on the 2018 Nissan Pathfinder and may launch on even more models. So there's uh, one car manufacturer trying to do something. Had a couple of uh, terrific suggestions from listeners, too. A kid alarm, like a kill switch on a snowmobile. A line plugged into an alarm that pulls out when the driver gets out. And then uh, there was another one here that I wanted to mention. Uh, it had to do with uh, sort of the sensors that you have in your car in order to turn off the airbag in your uh, passenger seat when someone sitting there is either not present or someone isn't uh, heavy enough to set it off. So there is a variety of technology that is being investigated. And so hopefully one day soon, we will never have to talk about this again. Fair enough. Okay. Are you are you okay? Do you, you feeling? Great. No, I'm feeling better. Like Good. I said, I'd like to bitch. I like to complain. No, that's I like fine. To vent, I, I just want to make but sure. Then I, I also like to talk about solutions, right? Because there's wanna... a solution to to every situation. Mm-hmm. Technology has gotten gotten us into a lot of the jams that we're in as a society right now. Ironically, I suspect it's going to be technology that gets us out as well. Yeah, I don't want to step on your toes. So I want to make sure that you've aired out everything All you good. need to. Okay, two things real quick before we shift gears. There's <laughs> 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 Something. This is how our conversations always go with Greg. Tristan, I'm going to let you finish, yeah. but I got something else to say right now. just want to let you know that Justin Medlock, the kicker of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and defensive back uh, linebacker Maurice Leggett have been named uh, Shaw Stars of the Week in the CFL, and that's an excuse for me to let you know that the Blue Bomber podcast, the latest episode, is up. It's up a day late. Because of the long weekend, the Terry Fox holiday on Monday, Doug Brown and I recorded it last night. And behind the glass, Jerry Jerry Richardson uh, put it all together um, into the uh, wee hours of the afternoon, late in the day for him as he starts his day about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. It is available on iTunes as well at cjob.com. Uh, would love to have you subscribe, download, and uh, share the podcast. We're already getting people uh, entering uh, with the secret word that uh, enters you into a contest, into a draw for Blue Bomber tickets. So uh, check it out. If uh, you would like the insight, the inside scoop on the Blue Bombers, Justin Medlock uh, visited with us for about 11 minutes yesterday. He had some ver- very insightful things to say. He's typically quite quiet. So uh, Doug and I were uh, very uh, thrilled to welcome him to the podcast. Thank you, Greg. Greg steps down from the stage. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, there was something I wanted to do as a segment, though, not so much a soapbox segment, but I feel as if, especially with the rising tensions between North Korea and Washington, um, I, I think there's a lot of information that needs to get out there because this is a, make no mistake, this is a very serious situation. Some publications saying, oh, World War Three is upon us. No, 
let's let's be realistic here. But the fact of the matter is we have very strong words coming from President Donald Trump and we have a madman in charge of North Korea. And the fact of the matter is some of these headlines are well, kind of scary, to be honest. I mean, this is from Business Insider here. A Los Angeles suburb released this ominous video about how to survive a nuclear attack. And this is fact. Several American cities, uh, New York, San Francisco, Honolulu, are res- are responding, have response plans for terrorist attacks, and they're looking at how they would deal with a real nuclear explosion. And what's happening here is that you know, as a result of the tension between these two countries, and again, a lot of other countries are fed up with North Korea's behavior, frankly, uh, there is a lot of talk about uh, a possible nuclear attack on the U.S. Now, I would suggest, just from my you know perspective on the ground here, uh, not that there's nothing to worry about. This is something to certainly keep an eye out. And if you're living nearby North Korea, if you're in South Korea, Japan, or Guam, which the North Korean government mentioned they might consider launching missiles in that direction, of course you're on edge because you don't know what that regime will do. But ultimately, I think it's important to be well-informed when it comes to something like this, to pay attention to the news, to pay attention to what people are talking about. But ultimately, this is not the time for panic. This is not the second Cold War. This is not Armageddon on our doorstep. This is none of that. But having said, you sound very sure of that. I am very sure of that because we've been we've been through the situation time and time again. And Greg, you mentioned that you don't think that uh, Kim Jong Un, the North Korean dictator, has any desire to be annihilated. No, I don't think he wants to die prematurely. So he will say all sorts of things like, "We'll launch missiles against the U.S. We'll do this. We'll do that." Blah blah blah. He'll say all sorts of stuff like that. But ultimately, it means very little. And the fact of the matter is. You know, really, nobody wants a war on that peninsula. Despite North Korea's grandstanding, they don't want a war because they know they'll lose. South Korea doesn't want a war because now they pro- they would not lose with support from allies, but ultimately that would result in millions dead and a country absolutely devastated. Nobody wants a war here. But the fact of the matter is we have a dictatorship that refuses to give up nuclear weapons, and we frankly don't know where those nuclear weapons will go. Who might be out on the market to buy them? That's the bigger concern in this story, from my mind. But ultimately, it is worth keeping an eye out, stay informed, uh, and. but I don't think it's worth panicking. I think headlines that say World War III or Armageddon, I think that's really irresponsible in a situation like this, especially if you take two seconds to look up the Cold War or the Cuban Missile Crisis. Look those up, and then you'll really see what, you know, two seconds to midnight looks like. Tristan Field Jones, uh, I'll sleep better tonight after that Good. sermon okay. from you. I appreciate that. I, I think inf- when it comes to fears and phobias, information and facts and knowledge is always the key. I it don't is think there's any question about that. Always the key. And that helps me. If I, if I ever had a fear or a phobia or something, I'd look it up and look at the facts and uh, here's what actually happens and here's what you know may happen. And that always puts my mind at rest. I'm sure the fire and fury statement from Donald Trump yesterday was well that was well thought out, right? According to the New York Times, it was completely improvised. Hmm.
Shocking. Take a break and we come back. We will uh, update you on traffic and weather. And then Keith McCullough and Julie Buckingham will uh, let you know what's going on in the news. But before that, we've got some stuff to give away. We have our producer, Jeff Forge, behind the board. Hey, don't you guys want to give away some tickets? <laughs> you know what? We need to lighten things up after the last we have a job half to do here. here. Yeah. Hey, uh, the Northern Pikes are coming to Winnipeg. They're coming to the Burton Cummings Theater. You can be there. Is it November or October 28th? Forche? November 23rd. Oh, so close. Eight looks like three. <laughs> I don't have a photographic well, we memory. One number, Pretty close. Right? I got it right. November 23rd, Burton Cummings Theatre. We had Brent Fitz on the program earlier, and he is embarking on a world tour with one of the most famous rock and rollers of all time. All you have to do is phone Jeff Forche now, 204-780-6868. Who will Brent Fitz be touring with? And you'll be going to see... The Northern Pikes, November 23rd at Burton Cummings Theatre. Beat the box office for Northern Pikes right here on 680 CGOB. Traffic and weather next. That's the voice of Tristan Field-Jones, otherwise known as buy your lottery tickets now. I, I, I feel compelled to go and buy lottery tickets the way you just demanded I do so. Well done. Okay. Yeah, very <laughs> emphatic. I'm not, I'm not forcing you to do anything, Greg, but if you want to go buy your lottery ticket, you go do that. Okay, I'm going to do that. Okay. Okay. And uh, As long as you share some of the wealth with me, I'm happy. Not a chance. Uh, uh, well, there we go. Keith McCullough. There it is. Who I will share with, by the way. Thank you. Uh, Julie Buckingham, who I won't share with. Wow. It's, it's perfect. Keith and I are on one side of the table, and the two of you are wow. not on uh, the same side of the hmm. table. Um, Sorry, Julie. Julie not See, you now you want me to share my information on what is... I, I don't you don't so. have to. Julie, just Keith, go home for the Coming up on the news this afternoon. <laughs> uh, you know what? We, we want to play some of the audio for folks of uh, the premier, Brian Pallister, today, who was uh, very prickly. defensive, prickly, pick a, an adjective, when asked for about 15 minutes uh, in a row questions from reporters about the whole Costa Rica email, using his wife's cell phone thing. We've been asking him to come on CJOB virtually every day. For a week. For weeks and he finally decided to address the issue today and although it, let's be honest was he really addressing that they had an they had an announcement there was an announcement and he got asked about and it and he got asked about this and he t- to his credit he took questions for as long as the media could ask them uh, but he sounded very annoyed so we'll play uh, oh, yeah. some of the audio we'll let you be the judge on the Brian Pallister uh, thing we'll have a, a member of the opposition NDP join us a right. political scientist join us to because the big question is this is happening does it matter to people out there uh, people who vote in something Manitoba? i'll ask the political scientist is is this should he be learning from this and is people be learning from this if he had to come on 680 cjob a week ago how about a year ago when the questions were first being asked Whenever, what did the just... premier what did the premier do invite the media into his office and spread out a bunch of books and file folders and say see i work but there was no mention of how he communicated via email or and cell phone think... in fact he suggested he didn't use email at all he didn't say he used his wife's email. He said he didn't use any at all. I don't really care how he communicates, but don't lie about how you communicate because that tells me that you're lying about other stuff. And would it not have been better? Let's we'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say this most recent incident, they put Stephenson up instead of of Pallister and a week later it's bubbling back up again. If he had come on the air a week ago and addressed it, we wouldn't be talking about it right now. 
So we in the media are going to take a lot of flack from people saying, why are you still talking about this? Well, because the individual at the center of it refused to talk about it until, until today. today. And that is why we're, we're doing the story again. We will uh, also talk with uh, Dr. Robin Lindsay. He's a research scientist at the Public Health Agency of Canada at the Microbiology Lab here in Winnipeg. And the federal government is uh, sending out some warnings about uh, Lyme disease and working with local agencies across the country and making sure the Canadians know about the illness. And, and I will... Uh, Find out if a vaccine is on the way since he's at that microbiology lab. If you can, I'd love to know if there is a resistance within the healthcare system in Canada to do all the testing required to determine whether or not someone has Lyme disease, because that's a complaint I've heard from folks over the years that they have the symptoms, they request the testing. Apparently, it's quite an expensive test to have. So there's I wanna, one, there's it, one it, test that I believe there's one test that's sort of approved by Health Canada that doctors use. But if you talk to sort of alternative doctors and specialists in Lyme disease, there's actually another test that maybe doctors here should be using because that is, and we will address that certainly, Julie, that's one of the big issues. People think they have Lyme disease, they might have Lyme disease, and doctors don't know enough about it, and they're not being properly diagnosed. It's really still a big mystery, Mm -hmm. but it certainly sounds like it's much like zebra mussels here to stay in terms of these types of ticks, so we better start educating ourselves on it. And we will ask you about your patients we touched a nerve with Greg on the on the Premier's emails. We will let you rant, if you can rant for 30 seconds, about what really makes you lose your patience. That is how we're giving away our Guns N' Roses tickets oh, today. We also I'm scared are about this. going to this could have be crazy. winners to go to the two headliners at Barbecue and Blues Fest this weekend, the Fabulous Thunderbirds and the Blind Boys of Alabama. So six winners on the news today. Uh, that eight, including you, you and Keith, that would be eight winners all together. Lori Keith is our Northern Pikes winner. She knew that, knew that Brent Fitz starts his tour tomorrow night in Manohoman, Minnesota with Gene Simmons going to travel the world. TFJ, thanks for everything today. Jeffrey Forche, as always, keeping us on track for the most part. Our listeners for their incredible interaction today. Thanks for putting up with my soapboxing uh, once or twice on this afternoon. We'll be back tomorrow at 1. We'll do it all over again on Mackling and McGarry.